preacher asking a congregation, could you turn to the book of Haggai? And there's lots of frantic page turning and flicking through the Bible and everybody's going this way and that way and pages rustling here, there and everywhere. And one person says to the other, not very good for business, is it? So I says, what on earth? He goes, what on earth do you mean? He goes, well, it's a lot of turnover for a minor prophet. <laughs> if you like that joke, my pleasure. If you didn't like that joke, I got it from Derek. All right. <laughs> of course it's a Derek joke. Of course it is. So we've been asking different questions each week, haven't we? The first week we asked, whose house? The people... God was speaking to through the prophet Haggai had blind spots, big blind spots. And it helped us realize sometimes we can have the same blind spots ourselves. They were building nice houses for themselves and not prioritizing building God's house. The question, whose house, whose house are you building? It was for them to be looking at themselves and therefore for us to be looking at ourselves. And then last week we looked at the second question, whose eyes? About God teaching them and therefore us to look through his eyes, to see things from his perspective. It's about seeing uh, God as their and our immediate source of strength in the first place, but then also to be able to look beneath the surface and to appreciate what God's really up to all along. This wasn't even about building a merely physical temple. This was all pointing to um, God building a much more glorious home for his presence, something far grander than human craftsmanship could ever achieve, namely his unshakable kingdom, his future church, namely us. So that question, instead of like the first question about looking at themselves, this question was about looking at their circumstances through God's eyes, from God's perspective. Today we've got one more question. As we finish off the rest of chapter 2, we're going to ask this question. Whose purpose? Whose purpose am I living for? What purpose am I living for? Is it something I've come up with, something I'm gunning for that I'm not even aware is driving me? Or am I truly seeking to live out God's purpose for me, God's purpose for us as a church? It overlaps with the previous two. As we recognize our need to see ourselves and our circumstances from God's perspective, we then discover our true purpose in life. And here, as we continue through from chapter 2, verse 10, if you're still looking for it, if you're still lots of turnover, it's the third to last book in the Old Testament. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and then the New Testament. We're going to carry on from verse 10 of chapter 2. We're going to find God speaking to his people again about this very thing, about his intent for his people to be set apart, to be different, to be other for his people to be marked out for a purpose. There's going to be two messages we're going to look through. Like last week, we're going to do one at a time. Two messages. This time, they're delivered on the same day. If you look at the dates, it, both times it mentions the 24th day of the ninth month. In our calendar, that's mid-October. It's about the, uh, sorry, mid-December. It's about the 18th of December. Uh, but they both come on the same day. One is to the people at large, and then one is to an individual. And through them, we just see these rich threads of the gospel, of what God's pointing to all along. So let's read from verse 10, first of all. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. 
If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people, and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hand. What they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. God is reminding the people that of what he'd been challenging them with months ago, right at the beginning of this book that we looked at two Sundays ago. Their priorities have been wonky, remember. They, as a wake-up call, therefore, God had ensured that their efforts were actually a waste of time. Their harvests were poor, their wages frittered away to nothing, their material possessions became worthless and so on. But As they've stepped up, as they've acted out of obedience, God is now saying, I'm lifting the sanctions. He's saying, I'm now opening up the tap. It's no longer a dry season. The blessings are going to flow. Now, before we rush on, that's brilliant, that's wonderful. Thank you, Lord. But I just want to press pause, just as an aside, just make a point here before we rush on. This does not mean... That every time we try to be more holy and every time we try to be more obedient, that means we'll get nicer things, more money or better health. It doesn't work like that. That's known as the prosperity gospel or health and wealth teaching. Or maybe the more we give, maybe the more we'll get, that kind of thing. It is preached, but it completely defies everything the Bible stands for. We've got to be so careful. It talks about our divine right to financial prosperity and and uh, physical well-being as God's people. It's our right to have these things. And it often um, hinges on these um, benefits. They hinge on our own giving and how devoted we are in our prayer life and so on and so forth. Ultimately, that kind of teaching, that kind of belief, that theology is actually a spiritual cancer. It's really damaging. It's a common message that is preached from many Christian TV shows. If you look around, you can read it in a number of books. It's preached from a number... Of platforms, but we really need to be on the alert for it like hawks. We need to be discerning and to, and to separate the wheat from the chaff. You know, chew the meat, spit out the bones. You've got to be so careful. It can be sly. It sounds nice. I want nice things, but if you pray more and give more, you'll get nice things. That's what it, it sounds enticing. That's why people buy into it, but it's actually it's downright dangerous. It's downright damaging. We've just got to be really, really careful. The truth is... Everything from God is a gift. That changes everything. Everything from God is a gift. And he decides 
whether we get it or not, depending on what he deems is best for us and when. It is as simple as that. It's not based on how hard we try to be holy, for example. Because actually, if it's all based on how hard we try to be good and how hard we try to be holy, then that actually just demonstrates a wonky heart on our behalf in the first place because we've got false motives. I'm doing this because of what I'll get out of it. That's the thing. What we have here in this passage is a very particular incident where God has deemed that it was not in the people's best interests to be left drowning in their creature comforts and their empty lifestyles. So he did something to give them a kick up the backside. And even then they still weren't responding. But now he's going, do you know what? Out of my goodness and my grace, I'm releasing the sanctions. The blessings will flow. That's a, that's a mark of his goodness and his grace, not actually a mark of their obedience still. Because you think about it, reward charts, who's using reward charts as a parent? If you, reward charts, they're okay, they can work, they can, there's a place for them. They can work, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. They, sometimes they work. But if you think about a parent who only ever rewards good behavior, you can end up with a child who's good only because of what they get out of it. I'm doing this because I get another sweetie or I get another sticker that will work towards getting a toy or whatever it is. Or if you think, and on the other hand, you get a father who only rewards his kids to keep them quiet and to stop them nagging. That kind of father is going to end up with a bunch of spoiled beavers. It's true. A good parent deems what's best for a child at any given moment. And that can include uh, withholding good things for a while sometimes, but it can also include pouring out lavish affection on the child because of who they are, not just when they're good. And there is only one father I know who always gets that right. <laughs> and that's God the Father. So I just want to point that out. This passage does not mean the more obedient we are and the more holy we are, we get good stuff. It's different. He's a good father who loves us, his kids, and he pours out good things on us. But sometimes when he withholds stuff, it's for our good. We need to understand that. So... Within this context of God saying, okay, I'm going to release the blessings anyway. I'm going to pour it out on you as my people. Within this, he's also just been pointing out something really helpful. Because he's been pointing out to them that their offerings have been unclean. And their offerings have been unclean because of their unclean hearts. Their motives, remember, have been wonky. God's forcing them, and therefore us, to consider how holiness, how cleanliness, spiritual cleanliness, how it really works. Let's have a look at verse 12 again. What does he say? He uses picture language, doesn't he? But it's really helpful. Verse 12, uh, he asks the question, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and it touches, with it, and he touches with his fold, any kind of food, bread, stew, wine, oil, any kind of food, does that food, therefore, having been a proximity to something holy, does it become holy? The answer is no. It doesn't work like that. And then he flips it. And he says, well, what if someone who's become unclean by contact with a dead body. If they touch any of these things, does it become unclean? The answer is, well, yes. It's a simple question and therefore a simple observation that if something clean comes into, something, comes into contact with something dirty, which one changes? It's always the clean thing that gets dirtied, isn't it? It's never the, the other way around. When I worked in the ambulance service, uh, in the NHS, they gave us um, uh, hygiene training. 
safer hand washing techniques. And they used to give us this clear gel. It's a transparent gel that you spread all over your hands. Can't see anything. Looks the same. Put it under a UV lamp. It looks like you smothered your hands in white paint. And they go, right, go and wash your hands. So go off and wash your hands, scrub and try and be really clever. I'm going to catch Tutor out with this. I'm going to be really, really clever. You wash your hands as best you can, and you come back, put them under the UV lamp, and you find white still everywhere around your wrists, in between your fingers, around your fingernails. They caught you out. So you go, right, okay, I'm going to do it properly. So you go off and wash your hands for a second time. Give them a good scrub. Try and get all the bits you remember where you saw the white, white um, gel was. Come back, still looks clean. Put them under the UV lamp. you still find some. But then if you took the UV lamp around with you, you'll find it all over the taps, all over the basin, all over the desks, all over your clothes. There's proper everywhere. The point is that clean things don't make dirty things cleaner just by coming in contact with each other. It's always the other way around. So if you take that to another level, this does mean that whenever there's a stomach bug going around, I know it, I'll properly wash my hands. I'm normally all right. If we're gonna, we'll do a hand-washing uh, workshop during refreshments time at the end. I'll, I'll show you all the little techniques. But you take this to another level. Therefore, you can share your sickness with other people, but you can't share your health. Think about it. Hanging out with sick people, depending on the sickness, obviously, but hanging out with sick people can make you sick. Hanging out with well people does not make you more well. It's true, isn't it? Dirt stains what's clean, never the other way round. And so these people, they had soiled motives all along in doing what they were doing, going through the motions. They were half-hearted, they were unloving, they were uncaring, they were dismissive, they were self-centered. And therefore it meant their offerings were anything but clean and worthy of a holy God because they were affected by their motives in the first place. Their twisted hearts had affected their offerings. And so when it comes to humanity, who repeatedly were, were constantly, we are... We were born into sin because of humanity's choice all along. And so our hearts are always prioritized in the wrong direction. And so therefore, anything we touch is just stained by our motives. The trouble is, therefore, how do we fix that? Because the upshot of this is that they, and therefore we, could never make ourselves clean in the first place. How, how do you, if you're dirty, how do you make yourself clean? If you're already dirty and you're left to your own devices, you need a source of purity to do the job for you. Otherwise, you're just moving the dirt around from one place of your body to another. If you've got dirty hands but no source of cleaning them, you're just smearing it, you're just pushing it about, and everything you touch gets stained. We need an external source of purity. If you're just physically dirty, you need a source of clean water, you need alcohol gel, you need probably bleach, I don't know, it depends what it is. Do you see what I mean? You need this external source of purity to clean. You can't do it, clean yourself up on your own. You're just moving the dirt around otherwise. And so with humanity's choices, when it comes to spiritual dirt, spiritual soiling, with humanity's choices having brought brokenness, that stain, once it's there, we can't remove it on our own. It's exactly the same. Any self-help methods, any trying to be good, it just moves the dirt somewhere else and everything we've touched is stained by it. We need an almighty external source of purity to make us clean and whole again in the first place. And that can only be God himself. He is holy. He is separate. He is set apart. He is transcendent. He is other. He is clean and he is pure. He is the only source of purity we can ever hope to lean on for external washing 
and cleaning. And that's why Jesus came in the first place. To bear our dirt. And his act of infinite holy sacrifice washes it away. You can only find it in him. And so here in this whole passage, that when you first read it, it's just a bit of an old question about clean food and unclean food and all this kind of thing. Within that, we suddenly find God's grace and the message of their Bible, that despite the people's tendency to stain everything, God is still committed to his calling them out as his people set apart for his purpose. He said, I'm not giving up on you. You might keep ruining it, but I'm, I'm not giving up on you. I'm going to make sure this happens. He, God is not going to go back on his promise, which is wonderful for them, but it's actually it's true for us as well. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, because this same commitment still remains for you and me today. 1 Peter chapter 2, and then keep your finger in this, because we'll come back to this later as well, this same verse. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. This is, to, this is Peter writing to God's people at large and he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You and I, if you've placed your trust in Christ for your cleaning, effectively, we are part, we are got part of God's holy nation. We are holy. We are set apart. We are washed, clean and set Apart, It's made possible through Jesus' purifying work on the cross and us stepping into that place of cleansing. That means we are holy because of his work and not ours. And therefore that gives us purpose. What has purpose got to do with this? Why does that give us purpose? Well, just think for, just think for a moment about potatoes. could be anything. Potatoes, you're washing potatoes to cook them. When you wash potatoes up, when you've washed one up, do you put it back in the bowl with the dirty ones or do you put it somewhere else put it I hope you put it somewhere else suddenly the the washed potato is now set aside fit for purpose and if that's true of potatoes (laughs) imagine how true it is of us God's people he hasn't just purified us cleaned us and set us aside for no reason what's the point in that he's done it for a purpose there's always God is intentional there is always a purpose in it He has set us aside, cleaned us up, made us whole through Jesus. And then suddenly that brings new purpose to our existence, one that aligns with his and not ours. So, this theme continues. Let's read the last few verses of Haggai. We'll come back to 1 Peter 2 in a sec. Those last few verses of Haggai. And see how God continues this theme. On the same day, he has another word now for an individual. From verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, same day. It says, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring 
For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. You remember last week we were um, discovering that what God was saying to the people was about his unshakable kingdom. That when he shakes the earth, what will remain is his unshakable kingdom. It's his church and everything that lives under his domain, under his rule. That's unshakable. And God's saying here, I'm going to shake the earth. My kingdom is what will remain. But it says, you, Zerubbabel, you're part of that plan. Now this is truly beautiful. Even when you just read it on the surface, that's a beautiful thing to read. But even more so when we realize who Zerubbabel is. Zerubbabel, this governor, he's actually the grandson of the last king of Judah. King Jehoiakim, also known as King Jeconiah of Judah, that's his nickname. King Jehoiakim was the last king of Judah. He was very young when he came to the throne. He was a teenager. He only ruled for three months before the despotic enemy king came in and took him and many of his people into exile a thousand miles away. There's records of him still exist today in Iraq. Records of King Jehoiakim you can find on stone tablets detailing his food rations. Here is a guy who was once a king, suddenly in exile a thousand miles away, being given food rations. What a downfall. What a downfall. And it gets worse because God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah. You can have a look later in Jeremiah chapter 22. God speaks to him and his family to say that none of um, Jehoiakim's descendants will ever sit on a throne again. And in fact, the language he uses, he said, you're like a signet ring on my finger and I'm removing you from my finger. None of your bloodline will sit on the throne again. And she uses this language, signet ring. I'm taking the signet ring off my finger. And yet here now, we have God saying to Jehoiakim's uh, grandson, saying, I'm going to make you like a signet ring. He uses the same language again. It's really interesting. Which, Je- uh, uh, which Zerubbabel would be very aware of. So just imagine this. We've got Jehoiakim's grandson, Zerubbabel, Instead of now sitting on a crown, sitting, uh, wearing a crown, sitting on a throne, like he should rightfully be as an heir, instead he's overseeing the building of a somewhat drab-looking temple, and everyone's a bit downcast about it. it's not quite the same as the glory days. And imagine how we must have felt at some time, uh, sometimes, thinking, how has it come to this? He needs encouragement from God, which God does give him, but actually what God does give him is something truly mind-blowing. He says, Zerubbabel, I have chosen you, and I'm going to make you like a signet ring. Exactly what was taken away from his grandfather. He says, actually, I'm going to make you like a signet ring. Now think about what this means, a signet ring. Even the word signet in our English language is related to the word signature. It's part of the same thing. A signet ring is about, it's a sealing sign. The signet ring was used by um, kings to put their official signature on documents. They, they pressed the signet ring into the wax or into the clay. And what it is, this is then a visible um, guarantee that a king will keep his promise and fulfill the terms of the agreement or the decree. And so this heir to a throne that never would be ever again, Zerubbabel, he's been told by the ruler of all that he is chosen and that he is to be a demonstration of God's sealing his promise to mankind. His grandfather, Jehoiakim, had been rejected by God. But Zerubbabel has been fully accepted. And if you look in Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogies, you discover that Zerubbabel actually ends up in Jesus' genealogy. 
he is actually, Zerubbabel, this guy, is Jesus' great, 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 great grandfather. His efforts have made no difference. Remember what I was saying earlier about the prosperity gospel. His efforts have made no difference. This is purely God's grace over him. But while his human kingship has been denied, his bloodline leads directly to the king of all kings. Simply out of love, God has chosen Zerubbabel for a purpose. Remember that. Simply out of love, God has chosen Zerubbabel for a purpose. And the same goes for us. While this, the specifics of this are obviously unique to Zerubbabel, but the principle remains for you and for me. Our past and our efforts make no difference. We can't earn God's favour. What you do or don't do doesn't make God love you any more, doesn't make him love you any less. As his people, we have his favour, not because of what we've done, but because we're his. We can't earn God's favour, but even his reach is big enough to find us where, no matter how far we've wandered. It makes no difference, our efforts. God chooses us regardless of our past out of a simple act of his love. It's a choice. He chooses us. Are we chosen? 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 Are we chosen like Zerubbabel? Yes, the Bible says so. And in fact, we read that very word earlier. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 again. This is what he says right at the beginning, but you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You don't choose something for no reason. We are God's chosen people. Do you remember at school, they used to, the PE teacher would ask, pick out two captains. They go, right, choose your teams. Guess who was last? Uh, oh, oh a few of us. Yay! Outcast together. I was standing there, shivering. Not an ounce of body fat on me. Obviously, I know. In the cold, wet rain, in the mud, in my rugby kit, praying for Jesus' second coming to be today. Lord Jesus, I can't take this anymore. Will you just let this be the end of it? Just take me back to heaven, please. I just don't want to do this. And I was always the last to be chosen. Always, yeah. The Bible says, if you look in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, you discover that when you're his, you then find out that your name's been in the book of life since before the foundation of the earth. That blows my mind. God knew. God knew. And he's chosen you. And your name has been in the book of life since before you ever existed, since before this universe ever existed. God didn't wait till somewhere in the choosing to pick you out and not leave you last, let alone leave you last. He chose you before the choosing began. Does that make any sense? Blows my mind. Absolutely blows my mind. He wants us as his people. It's not a place we've earned, but it's a place he's given us. Remember, everything he gives is a gift. And it's for a purpose. What is the purpose? We carry on, 1 Peter 2. I'm going to re- read it again. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous 
light. What am I here for? To proclaim him. To proclaim his excellencies. To point to the one who has brought us out of darkness into his marvellous light. See, whose purpose? There's a question. We can be living for another purpose. Even blindly, may not even realise we're doing it. We can have great plans to achieve much for ourselves, can't we? We can, we can always just... Our purpose can be about having a nice home, comfortable life, minimal sacrifice. Always sounds nice. We don't like sacrifice, do we? But I can guarantee you that that does not breathe life. That's exactly what the people are doing. They're living this, living this cycle of life that was just vanity. It was just a vacuum. It doesn't breathe life into us, and it does, certainly doesn't honour God. Living like that, living for ourselves, living for comfort, and so on. But our purpose can even be to achieve much for Jesus. Doing church. Going through the motions of church. Trying to be dutiful. Trying to do the right things, but actually just doing it in our own strength. Trying to keep God happy. Trying to make sure he'll stay happy with me. Trying to do the right thing for that reason. There's a false motive there, actually, when you dig into it, isn't there? Just trying to keep him happy. That's different to doing it out of love for him. None of that makes him love us any more or any less. But they're false motives and they stain things. And actually it's a false purpose ultimately at the end. The sooner we start remembering God's purpose for us, the better. We are called to be his pure people, to be separate. Yes, we are set apart for a purpose, but we are being sent into the world. God has sent us into the world. You know that phrase, you're in the world but not of the world. That's used as a reason to don't touch. Jesus doesn't say you're in the world but not of the world. He said you're not of this world but I'm sending you into it. We've got a job to do. It's not don't touch dirty. He said you are pure, you are holy but out of reverence for me I want you to go and proclaim my excellencies. You've got a job to do. You've got a mission to do. About proclaiming the excellencies of the one who has set us free. We've got to ask the question is my purpose in life because sometimes we're blind to it. We're just not even aware we're living like this. Is my purpose in life a comfortable one? Finding an easy life? Having, making a career path? Making money? Making friends? Not necessarily these are necessarily bad things, but they can consume us and they can eclipse living for him. What are my habits? What are my passions? Where does my heart lean? What does my diary and my bank account tell me? It's good questions, isn't it? What is my purpose in life? But as we continue into 2020, into this next chapter of Beacon, we're going to have plenty of opportunities to proclaim his excellencies. Am I going to do that? Am I going to take those opportunities? This isn't a guilt trip. This is just a genuine, where am I at? What does he want from me? What has he set me apart for? If he's made me fit for purpose, what is that purpose? It is simply to proclaim his excellencies in everything I do with my speech, with my manner, with my conduct, with my thoughts, with my efforts. Everything I do, does it proclaim the excellencies of the one who has brought me out of darkness into his marvellous light? Do you want to stand? Pete, do you want to... Pete, you're texting, that's right. When he's, when he's able, he'll come up and lead us through song. But I'm just going to pray.
Lord, it's, it's pretty humbling when I realize how many times my heart needs recalibrating. <laughs> my heart needs recentering on you. But it's an opportunity right now, Lord. I thank you so much. Because of your grace, because of your goodness, your kindness, your fatherly love. Your arms are always open. You're beckoning me, you're beckoning us to step back into your purpose of proclaiming your excellencies, of pointing to Jesus, of inviting others to meet with you. Lord, ultimately, you're the only source of life. And quite often what I do doesn't breathe that into me. Lord, I pray, by your help, by Holy Spirit's help, will you recenter the compass in my heart to keep it fixed on you, to keep it fixed on what you want from me, to keep it fixed on what you want from us as a church. Lord, you've got a job for us to do here in, in um, Herne Bay. You've set us apart and made us fit for purpose for a reason in this town and in this region. So Lord, I just ask that you will help us to keep our eyes lifted to the horizon, if you like, to be aware of what you're doing around us, to keep asking, Lord, what is it you're doing around us? Where do you want us to roll our sleeves up and get stuck in? Lord, will you help us to keep asking, whose house am I building? Am I building my house or am I building God's house? Lord, help me to keep on my radar the, the question, whose eyes am I trying to see things through? Am I seeing things from your perspective or just mine? Am I looking at the surface or am I looking beneath it? Lord, I need your help to keep being reminded of what's my purpose in life? Why do I get up in the morning? Is it because I'm going to go and see a friend? Is it because I'm going to, I don't know, step into something new at work or or even see things that put me off and think I don't really want to get up today Lord beneath all of that may we see your purpose give us a fresh reason to get up in the morning and may the overbearing reason every morning for us to get up out of bed is because it's to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has brought us out of darkness into marvellous light. There are so many more that do not know that, so many more that don't even know it's available. Lord, you've got a job for us to do. So help us, even as we sing these songs, will you do something in our hearts, will you do some heart surgery? Holy Spirit, we welcome you to muster up something new in us that we can't achieve and to step into your purpose for this year and beyond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Go for it, Pete. Thank you.